This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow, and I'd like to read a tweet that was sent to me by Weirdo Family member AnCat96. She said, My MyPillow came in yesterday, and I didn't think I would like it because of how it was stuffed. Oh, was I wrong. I slept like a baby and woke up and my neck didn't hurt. Made it so much harder to get out of bed. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com, promo code WEIRD. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Poltergeist activity is probably the most misunderstood form of paranormal activity, at least in conjunction with haunted houses. The word poltergeist actually means noisy ghost when translated from German, and for many years researchers believed that noisy ghosts were causing the phenomena reported in these cases. It was assumed that the things which occurred in a house that was haunted by a poltergeist were caused by an outside force. While some cases of real-life poltergeists have turned out to be both intelligent spirits and the work of human agents, some cases exist that lead researchers to believe that they may actually be a combination of the two. But then what if it's possible that some locations actually attract both kinds of phenomena? I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. And thanks to everybody who made a donation or encouraged others to give during our October fundraising campaign for Battle the Darkness. We raised a grand total of $2,190. So, after GoFundMe takes their small cut, that means that we will be giving $2,080.17 to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Your generosity was incredible. Well, once the funds are transferred to me and I make the donation, I will post a copy of the receipt at WeirdDarkness.com so you'll know that I've done what I said I would do because accountability is important to me. Yesterday was also our first live scream, and if you missed out on all or part of the broadcast or if you just want to view it again, I do have it posted in the Weird Web section of WeirdDarkness.com. And of course, you can find it on my YouTube page by searching for the Marlar House channel. I gotta say, I had a blast today reading all the comments in the chat. Uh, when I watched it back today. And also, there was a section where maybe about 10 minutes or so, my mic stopped working and I was just able to read the comments about you guys panicking on my behalf. It was hilarious, so thank you very much. Now on with the show. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. Weirdo family member Elena describes her childhood home, 
where she heard strange footsteps and banging on doors when no one was home, and a crucifix which refused to stay upright. An Australian man tells of a fishing trip where he and a couple of friends come across what appears to be a yowie or Bigfoot, but more human-like. Haunting the historic Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia, are eerie tales of anguished soldiers, an eternal watchdog, and one hideous vampire with jagged teeth and hanging skin. Were Jack the Ripper's victims killed to cover up a royal scandal? And we'll look at several cases of reported poltergeist activity and try to determine if it's supernatural, human in nature, or possibly a little bit of both. We'll begin with that story. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Let's take a look at the two different types of cases that are referred to as poltergeists. Poltergeist cases are the work of actual intelligent spirits, while poltergeist-like cases are the work of human agents. What makes this so hard to define is the fact that some cases seem to be a combination of the two, where haunted locations carry such a charge of energy that they make it possible for ghosts to exist there and for the unconscious energy of the human agent to manifest. In both kinds of cases, similar phenomena takes place, including knocking and tapping sounds, noises with no visible cause, disturbance of stationary objects like household items and furniture, doors slamming, lights turning on and off, fires breaking out, rock and dirt throwing, physical and sexual assaults, and much more. In some cases, these events can be tangible evidence of ghosts, but in other cases, while the activity is paranormal, it has nothing to do with spirits. Leaving out the actual cases involving negative and violent spirits, the current and widely accepted theory behind poltergeist phenomena is that the activity is usually caused by a person in the household. This person is usually an adolescent girl, and normally one who is troubled emotionally. It's believed that this person may be unconsciously manipulating the items in the house by psychokinesis, the power to move things by energy generated in the brain. This kinetic energy remains unexplained, but even mainstream scientists are starting to admit that it does seem to exist. It's unknown why this energy seems to appear in females around the age of puberty, but it has been documented to occur. It seems that when the activity begins to manifest, the girl is usually in the midst of some emotional or sexual turmoil. It's also possible for young boys and even adults to be able to manifest this unknowing ability. The vast majority of people have no idea that they are causing the activity and are usually surprised to find there's even a possibility that they could be making the strange things happen. What can be even more difficult for the researcher 
is when the acts of the spirits and this energy both manifest themselves in a location. It's believed that this can and does occur, and two of the most famous haunted house cases of this century boasted just this sort of strangeness. One of the world's most famous haunted houses cases was actually a case of where a haunted location assisted a human agent in creating her own activity. There seems to be no question that Borley Rectory was actually haunted, whether you choose to believe researcher Harry Price or not. The long history of independent accounts leads us to believe the haunting went on for many years before Price ever got involved. Briefly, Borley Rectory was a deteriorating old manor house in the English county of Essex. Harry Price got involved in the case in 1929 when a newspaper reporter told him of some of the strange things that had gone there for many years. He would later write two books about the house, and it would go on to be known as the most haunted house in England. Price was asked by the paper to investigate, and he was told about the history of reports there, like phantom footsteps, strange lights, ghostly whispers, a headless man, a girl in white, the sounds of a phantom coach outside, the apparition of the home's builder Henry Bull, and the spirit of the nun who walked in the garden. Local legend had it that a monastery had once been located on the site and that a 13th-century monk and a beautiful young novice were killed while trying to elope from the place. The monk was hanged and his would-be bride was bricked up alive within the walls of her convent. The stories had been told for many years by scores of reliable and independent witnesses. Price interviewed many of the former tenants and investigated the house thoroughly, even leasing the place for one year for a a 24-hour-a-day vigil. Many of Price's accounts from Borley would be first-hand, as he claimed to see and hear much of the reported phenomena, like hearing bells ring, rapping noises, and seeing objects that had been moved from one place to another. Although troublesome, the ghosts at the rectory had been relatively peaceful until October 1930 when Reverend Lionel Foister and his wife Mary Ann moved into the house. Their time in residence would see a marked increase in the paranormal activity. People were locked out of rooms, household items vanished, windows were broken, furniture was moved, odd sounds were heard, and much more. However, the worst of the incidents seemed to involve Mrs. Foister as she was thrown from her bed at night, slapped by invisible hands, forced to dodge heavy objects which flew at her day and night, and was once almost suffocated with a mattress. Soon after, there began to appear a series of scrawled messages on the walls of the house, written by an unknown hand. They seemed to be pleading with Mrs. Foister, using phrases like, Mary Ann, please help get and Mary Ann, light mass prayers. Because nearly all of the poltergeist-like activity occurred when Mrs. Foister was present, Price was inclined to attribute it to her unknowing manipulations. However, he did believe in the possibility of the ghostly nun and some of the other reported phenomena. 
The rectory did not fit into preconceived notions of a haunted house, which was one of the reasons that it would go on to gain such a reputation. Despite the implications of the phenomena centering around Marianne, Price maintained that at least one of the spirits in the house had found the rector's wife to be sympathetic to its plight. This was the only explanation he could find for the mysterious messages. To Price, Borley Rectory was actually a catalyst for paranormal activity. There was something about the location itself that seemed to invite energy in and also to act as a storage battery that Marianne Foister could somehow tap into. The house boasted three different types of phenomena. The ghosts that interacted with the investigators, the possible residual haunting of the nun, and the poltergeist-like activity produced by Mrs. Foister. Another case that brought together two types of activity seems to be the San Pedro haunting or the Jackie Hernandez case that was investigated by Barry Taff, who also investigated the famous Entity case. Taff got involved in the case along with cameraman Barry Conrad in 1989 when he was asked to look into a house in San Pedro, California that was allegedly being haunted. The owner of the house was Jackie Hernandez, a young woman with a number of emotional problems. The investigators were told of strange smells, unexplained sounds, moving objects, apparitions, a glowing cloud that tried to suffocate her and which had appeared in front of other witnesses and actually witnessed a peculiar dripping substance dripping from the kitchen cabinets. The events in the house grew stronger and even followed Jackie from place to place. Taft began to believe that she was creating the phenomena unconsciously because of her emotional problems and what became a strong romantic attachment to Barry Conrad. It seemed that anyone who might be perceived as a threat to Jackie's relationship with Barry ended up on the end of a violent attack by the ghosts. However, there are problems with the theory that this was strictly a human agent haunting. The unexplained lights are certainly odd, and so would be the reports of male apparitions from witnesses and the fact that, as Barry Taff found out later, Jackie's house continued to be reported as haunted even long after she moved out. According to the owners, no subsequent tenants stayed there for longer than six months. Could this be merely some leftover after-effect from Jackie's presence there? Or is it something else? Now let's take a look at some famous cases that leave little doubt as to their source. One of the most famous poltergeist cases in America took place in Maycomb, Illinois in 1948. In this case, a disturbed teenager named Juanette McNeil was forced to live with her father after her parents' bitter divorce. The girl and her father moved to an uncle's farm just west of Maycomb. Juanette was very unhappy with the situation, and her emotions were high. In the weeks that followed, Juanette managed to start fires all over her uncle's farm with nothing other than the power of her mind. She had no idea that she was causing the phenomena. The fires began on August 7th on the farm of Charles Willie. They began as small brown spots which appeared on the wallpaper in the house. The spots would appear and then mysteriously burst into flames. 
This continued to happen day after day, and neighbors came to help keep watch and put out fires as they appeared. Pans and buckets of water were left all over the house, and when a spot would appear, it would be quickly drenched. Still, the mysterious fires sprang up in front of the startled witnesses, and volunteers began standing by with hoses to put out the blazes. The fire chief from Maycomb, Fred Wilson, was called in to investigate, and he had the family strip all the wallpaper from every wall in the house. Dozens of witnesses then watched as brown spots appeared on the bare plaster and then burst into flames. During the week of August 7th, fires appeared on the front porch, ignited the curtains in every room, and even engulfed an entire bed. The National Fire Underwriters Laboratory investigated and reported that the wallpaper had been coated with flour paste and no bug repellent was present, which might have contained a flammable compound. They had no explanation for what they had seen. In addition to a number of insurance investigators, the Illinois State Deputy Fire Marshal, John Burgard, also came to the farm. In the week that followed, over 200 fires broke out, an average of 29 per day. On Saturday, August 14th, the fires raged out of control and finally consumed the entire house. Willie drove posts into the ground and made a shelter for his family with a tarp, while McNeil moved himself and his children into the garage. The next day, the barn went up in flames. On Tuesday, several fires broke out in the milk house, which was being used as a dining room. On Thursday, there were two more blazes, and a pile of newspaper was found to be smoldering in the chicken house. Later that day, the farm's second barn burned down in less than an hour. The family fled to a nearby vacant house, but the fires continued. That same day, the United States Air Force got involved in the mystery. They suggested the fires might be caused by some sort of directed radiation, but had no other explanation for what was going on. By this time, the farm was swarming with spectators, investigators, and reporters. Over a thousand people came to the farm on August 22nd itself. The suggested explanations ranged from fly spray to radio waves to underground gas pockets. With everything else being ruled out, the officials turned to the possibility of arson. While they had no explanation for the fires that suddenly appeared in front of reliable witnesses, with no possible natural cause, they did realize the puzzle had to be solved, and quickly. On August 30th, officials announced the case to be closed. The arsonist, according to officials, was Juanette, a slight 13-year-old who apparently possessed some pretty incredible skills and an unlimited supply of matches. Supposedly no one had been looking when she started all of the fires by herself, using ordinary kitchen matches. Deputy Fire Marshal Burgard and State's Attorney Keith Scott had taken Juanette aside for a little talk, and after an hour's intensive questioning, she had allegedly confessed. Her reasons? Apparently she was unhappy, didn't like the farm, wanted to see her mother, and didn't have any pretty clothes. Forgotten were the witnesses who had seen the brown spots appear, spread, and then turn into fires, while Juanette was nowhere to be seen. Also forgotten 
were the fires that had appeared on the ceilings, which could not have been set with ordinary kitchen matches. This explanation pleased the authorities, but not all of the reporters who were present seemed convinced, and the hundreds of paranormal investigators who have examined the case over the years haven't been either. One columnist from Peoria, who had covered the case since the beginning, stated frankly that he did not believe the girl's so-called confession. And neither did noted researcher Vincent Gaddis in his landmark book, Mysterious Fires and Lights, who was convinced the case was a perfect example of poltergeist phenomena. In the end, though, the case simply went away. Juanette was turned over to her grandmother, the insurance company paid Willie for the damage done to his house and farm, and reporters had closure for their stories, and the general public was hand-fed a simple solution, which could not possibly have been the truth. While the media certainly got involved in this case, these were the days before tabloids and tabloid TV. Poltergeist cases and media coverage certainly seemed to go hand-in-hand, and in many cases what began as actual events often deteriorate into trickery. When this happens, and I'll explain more in a moment, many of these cases are often dismissed as being frauds all along. This case became known as a perfect example of a poltergeist haunting which began as genuine and devolved into trickery thanks to media attention and the imagination of two little girls. The case began in Enfield, in North London, in a perfectly ordinary suburban townhouse. It was occupied by a woman named Peggy Harper and her four children, Rose, age 13, Janet, age 11, Pete, age 10, and Jimmy, age 7. The disturbances which would make this house famous began on the night of August 30, 1977, shortly after Janet and Pete retired to the bedroom that they shared. The other children slept with their mother in another room of the small home. The activity was first reported by Janet to her mother. She stated that their beds began bouncing up and down and going all funny. By the time that Peggy got to the room, the movements had stopped, leading her to believe that perhaps the children were making it all up. All remained quiet for the rest of the night, but the following evening, the events began in earnest. Around 9.30 the following night, Peggy was called to Janet and Pete's room by their excited daughter. This time, they claimed to hear noises coming from the floor. Janet said that it sounded like a chair moving, so Peggy took the only chair with her out of the room and downstairs. She believed this would calm the children down and get them settled for the night. Then, from downstairs, she too heard something odd. It was the same shuffling sound that Janet had mentioned. She hurried up to their room, but found both children lying in their beds asleep. Then four distinct knocks were heard from the wall, which adjoined the neighboring house. This prompted Peggy to turn the lights on once more, but she saw nothing out of the ordinary. Then a heavy chest of drawers moved out away from the wall about a foot and a half. Peggy shoved it back again, but the chest moved back to its former position. The next time she tried to shove it into place, the chest refused to budge. Shaking with fear, the family left the house and went next door to the neighbor's house. 
the neighbors investigated, as did the police. The officers also reported hearing the knocking sounds, now coming from all different walls. One of the officers was in the living room when a chair suddenly slid several feet across the floor. He examined it closely but could find no explanation as to how it had moved. The next day brought more phenomena, like flying toys. The police were unable to help, so the Harpers and their neighbors turned to the press. The Daily Mirror sent out a photographer and a reporter who stayed in the house for several hours. Nothing happened during their stay, until just as they got ready to leave. Suddenly, both men were assaulted with flying marbles and Lego bricks. A piece of a Lego flew across the room and hit the photographer so hard that it left a bruise which lasted for over a week. The newspaper contacted the Society for Psychical Research about the case, and they in turn contacted Maurice Gross, a resident of North London and an investigator. Gross arrived at the Harper House on September 5th, exactly one week after the disturbances began. His presence seemed to have a calming effect on the family, and for a few days, nothing out of the ordinary occurred. Then, on the night of September 8th, Gross and three reporters were keeping watch when they heard a crash in Janet's bedroom. Investigation showed that her bedside chair had been thrown about four feet across the room. Janet was asleep at the time, and no one had seen the chair move. However, it did happen again an hour later, and this time one of the photographers captured the event on film. Shortly after this, Gross was joined in the investigation by author Guy Lyon Playfair, and the two men spent the next two years studying the case. The case had a couple of aspects in common with standard poltergeist cases, including the involvement of two adolescent girls. In this case, one had already gone through puberty, and another was about to. The case also had another feature typical of such cases – personal tension. Peggy had never altogether resolved her feelings surrounding her divorce from the children's father. After she realized this might have something to do with the phenomena, she came to term with her volatile emotions and the disturbances ceased. Or rather, they took a short break. When they started up again, they had a somewhat different character. Now, more than ever, they seemed to focus on the two girls, Janet and Rose, and on Janet's bedroom. Investigators quickly came to the opinion that this new phenomena was more the work of human trickery than the work of a human agent. Two SBR investigators later revealed that reports from the two girls, usually unsubstantiated, seemed very contrived. In addition, a video camera secretly set up in the bedroom caught Janet bending spoons and attempting to bend an iron bar in an entirely normal manner. She was also seen bouncing up and down on the bed from where she would later claim she was thrown. Despite how this case concluded, there seems to be some strong evidence to say that the initial disturbances in the house were genuinely paranormal. In 1984, a Columbus, Ohio family was plagued by another case of poltergeist phenomena, and in spite of the claims of skeptics, many researchers believe this was a classic case of genuine activity at least for a time. 
John and Joan Resch first attracted publicity in late 1983 when a reporter from a local newspaper, the Columbus Dispatch, came to their home to chronicle the couple's extraordinary work with foster children. Over the years, the couple had taken in more than 250 homeless and disturbed children. At the time the article was written, the family consisted of John and Joan, their son Craig, their adopted daughter Tina, and four foster children. Five months later, the Resch family would be in the news again. Apparently, their 14-year-old daughter Tina had become a focus for a strange and very frightening series of events. On a Saturday morning in March 1984, all of the lights in the Resch home suddenly went on all at once, even though no one had touched a switch. John and Joan assumed the incident had been triggered by a power surge, and they telephoned the local utility company. It was suggested that they call an electrician, which they did. An electrical contractor named Bruce Claggett came to the house thinking it was merely a problem with a circuit breaker. He was unable to keep the lights from turning on. Claggett even tried taping the light switches so that they stayed off. Closet lights, which operated with a pull string, would be turned out, but seconds later, the bulbs would be glowing again. Claggett finally gave up, unable to explain what was going on. By evening, stranger things were being reported, like lamps, brass candlesticks, and clocks flying through midair, wine glasses shattering, the shower running on its own, and eggs rising out of the carton by themselves and then smashing against the ceiling. Knives were flying from drawers and more. A rattling wall picture was placed behind the couch only to slide back out again three different times. As the weekend wore on, a pattern began to develop. The intensity and focus of the activity seemed to be Tina, who was even struck by a number of the objects. A chair was seen tumbling across the floor in Tina's direction, and it was only stopped from hitting her because it became wedged in a doorway. The fact that Tina was the object of the activity is important. Family members, neighbors, and unrelated witnesses actually saw Tina being hit and smacked by flying objects, which came from parts of the room where she was not located. Near midnight on Saturday, the Columbus police were summoned to the house, but there was nothing they could do. The only respite from the strange events came on Sunday, when Tina left the house for church and then again in the afternoon when she went out to visit a friend. On Sunday evening, three elders from the Mormon church had been summoned by a relative and, laying their hands on Tina's head, attempted a prayer blessing to dispel the force which was creating havoc in the house. Unfortunately, it didn't work. By Monday morning, the house was a wreck, and literally dozens of reliable witnesses, including reporters, police officers, church officials and neighbors had reported unexplained phenomena in the Resch home. During an interview, a photographer snapped a photo of the telephone in action and was printed in the newspaper the following day. The publication of the photograph touched off a media furor. Television crews and newspaper reporters from all across the country descended on the Resch home, all hoping to witness some other manifestation of the supernatural. The newspaper reports also gained the attention of parapsychologist William Roll, who flew to Columbus to see the events firsthand. 
While he was there, a picture flew from the wall in front of him and his own tape recorder flew over seven feet under its own power. Roll was convinced that RSPK was at work. Skeptics weren't so sure and wisely began investigating the other photographs on the roll of film shot by the photographer on Monday morning. In one of the photos, Tina's hands had clearly been in a position to have manipulated the telephone cord and base. Soon, there was other damning evidence as well. During an extended visit by television reporters, a camera that had accidentally been left running recorded the girl grasping a table lamp by its cord and jerking out toward her. At the same time, she let out a cry of horror. When confronted, Tina admitted that she had faked some of the later phenomena. She explained that she'd been bored by the lengthy interviews and irritated by the constant attention. She hoped that the press would leave once they got their story. For the skeptics, the film and the confession were proof positive that the poltergeist had been Tina all along. Yet not everyone shared that view, including the majority of the supposedly skeptical journalists. Many of them remained sure that they had witnessed genuine, unexplained activity. They also pointed out that the skeptics had conveniently forgotten, and isn't that normally the case, about the scores of witnesses who would swear that activity had been directed toward Tina, not originating from her. William Roll, a trained scientist and observer, was also convinced of phenomena that he witnessed. He conceded that he had not been observing Tina under controlled conditions, but continued to assert that Tina seemed to have demonstrated authentic RSPK. What caused the manifestations? Researchers believed that it was a case of repressed anger and anxiety seeking release. Apparently, there had been recent problems at home over the fact that Tina, against the wishes of John and Joan, had recently been searching for her natural parents. Also, Tina's best friend of two years had ended their friendship just two days before the events began. All of this apparently combined to create an outward transference of energy. How exactly? We may never know. For those who question whether or not emotional problems can cause poltergeist-like activity to take place, should look at what happened to Tina after the TV cameras and reporters went away. According to a 1993 report, Tina, then 23 years old, was awaiting trial in Georgia for the murder of her three-year-old daughter. The child had been badly beaten and had died from injuries to the head. What the outcome of the trial was, and whatever became of Tina, is unknown. Several years ago, I was contacted by a young woman who reported that strange phenomena was occurring in her home. She was 18 years old at the time, although the incidents had been taking place since she was 14. According to her letters and follow-up calls, her house was very active and the phenomena included doors opening and closing, cabinet doors banging open, dishes being thrown about and broken, footsteps in the hallways at night scratching sounds and, most disturbingly, violent physical assaults that were directed at Christine. It was not uncommon for her to receive large bruises, cuts, and scratches from an invisible force. After meeting with Christine and her family and arranging an investigation of the house, I was contacted privately by her mother who explained 
that the strange happenings had begun shortly after Christine became pregnant in high school and started having problems in school and with her friends. She became even more stressed after having the baby, and the events escalated. All of it was centered, her mother explained, around Christine. The investigation that was conducted did seem to show that the activity revolved around her. Although nothing was actually observed during the initial investigations, we did hear slamming noises and doors closing in a sealed-off section of the house. Kitchen cabinets were also seen during unexplained movement. There was no one else present at the time, and we were unable to explain away the sounds. A follow-up trip revealed the photo at the top and the globe of what seems to be energy was actually observed by two investigators. No natural explanations could be discovered for the photo. A short time later, Christine began to see a psychologist, and counseling seemed to have a very positive effect on the situation. The strange phenomena in the house began to dissipate, and eventually stopped altogether. Her mother reports that Christine is happy and well-adjusted today, and there has been no repetition of the phenomena. Up next, haunting the historic Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia, are eerie tales of anguished soldiers, an eternal watchdog, and one hideous vampire with jagged teeth and hanging skin. Also, were Jack the Ripper's victims killed to cover up a royal scandal? These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Murderous Minds, Volume 1, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker. What goes on in the mind of a murderous killer? What is it about some people that lead them to commit murder? Is there something that is different, or is it simply a switch that gets turned on? Murderous Minds, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines, offers a look into the lives of individuals who didn't just become killers, but who managed to avoid the media storm that usually accompanies them. Inside, you will hear about people like Sante Kimes, a 65-year-old mother who was driven by greed and who committed multiple murders with her son. Robert James Ackerman, the MBA graduate who murdered three people in order to continue getting lap dances from a stripper that he became infatuated with. Larry Jean Ashbrook, who became deluded into thinking that strangers were accusing him of murder. When he could not take it anymore, he carried out a massacre at the Wedgwood Baptist Church. And more. Each story harbors its own distinct narrative and reasoning for the perpetrators of these heinous crimes, along with the background to the case, their lives, and the aftermath of their actions. Sometimes the truth is more appalling than anything fiction can provide, and Murderous Minds proves it once again. Murderous Minds, Volume 1, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample or purchase the title 
on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Jack the Ripper represents perhaps the most perplexing enigma in the history of crime. A Victorian serial killer who killed five prostitutes in the Whitechapel area of London in 1888, the Ripper's identity is as much of a mystery today as it was during that blood-soaked autumn long ago. Hundreds of books, films, and documentaries have speculated on the killer's true identity offering countless theories. Of all these theories, arguably the most influential and famous was first posited by author Stephen Knight in the 1970s. Knight spun an elaborate tale of conspiracy at the very top of British society, the royal family. He claimed the Ripper's victims were really killed to cover up a scandalous secret marriage between the Queen's son, Prince Albert Victor, then second in line to the throne, and a Catholic prostitute named Annie Elizabeth Crook, who bore Albert's child. Knight got much of his information from Joseph Gorman Sickert, who claimed to be the illegitimate son of painter Walter Sickert, himself a Ripper suspect. Gorman recounted the story to Knight as told to him by his father. Sir William Gull, a noted physician and purported high-ranking Mason, actually committed the murders with the help of accomplices in order to eliminate everyone who knew of Prince Albert's secret marriage. Despite many of the known facts contradicting the story, this royal conspiracy proved immensely popular, inspiring many other authors and numerous films and books. From Hell, a best-selling graphic novel by Alan Moore, used the royal conspiracy as a starting point to weave a wider and deeper tale of madness and esoterica, and films starring Christopher Plummer, Michael Caine, and Johnny Depp also centered on Knight's thesis. Were Jack the Ripper's victims really killed to cover up Prince Albert's secret marriage? Some parts of Knight's theory seem to be based on real history. Annie Crook was a real person, and she did have a child who was Joseph Gorman's mother. However, there is little evidence Gorman's father was Walter Sickert, beyond his own claims. And Annie Crook didn't work at a tobacconist, as Gorman claimed, but was a confectioner's assistant. Knight weaves Freemasonry into his theory, partially based on supposed ritual aspects to the murders, but also on the famous Golston Street Graffito. This was a small piece of chalk writing found in an alleyway next to a piece of the bloodied apron of victim Catherine Eddowes. It read, The Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. Knight theorized this was a reference to Freemasonry and the murder of Mason Hiram Abbeth in Solomon's Temple by three initiates, Jubila, Jubilo, and Jubilum. However, most Ripperologists think it was probably a piece of badly spelt anti-Semitic graffiti and unrelated to the murders. At the time of the murders, Gull was 72 and the previous year he had suffered a stroke that had left him partially paralyzed. He had recovered, but his frailty makes him a very unlikely serial murderer, especially one as ferocious and violent as Jack the Ripper. After Knight's book became an international sensation, Gorman, a man who shunned publicity, 
claimed he had made the whole thing up, possibly in an attempt to take the spotlight off of him. Whatever his reasons, Gorman's retraction of his story fatally undermines Knight's theory, which relied almost entirely on Gorman's account. Prince Albert was in Germany for three months during the summer of 1884, when, if the birth certificate is correct, Annie Crook's child was conceived. If Albert could not have fathered the child, then another central tenet of Knight's theory collapses. Although the theory was popularized in the 1970s, gossip that the Ripper was a member of high society was popular at the time of the crimes. The idea that the Ripper was some slumming member of the upper classes was particularly prevalent amongst the emergent tabloid press of 1888, and exaggerated stories of the Ripper's murders sold many papers. Rather than passing on some genuine first-hand knowledge of the crimes, Sickert may have just been recounting hearsay and stories that were going around at the time of the murders. Ultimately, the theory lacks real, verifiable documentary evidence to back it up. It is almost entirely based on hearsay, rumor, and speculation, much of which can be shown to be false. Knight's theory is a seductive one, and its sensational nature perhaps makes people want to believe it is the truth behind this most famous of unsolved crimes. But it fails on its most crucial points and remains little more, in the end, than a good story. In Richmond, Virginia, the word Hollywood represents a sprawling 130-acre field of aging monuments that predates the Civil War by nearly 20 years. Inspired by Boston's Mount Auburn Cemetery, Hollywood Cemetery was the brainchild of William Haxel and Joshua Fry. They enlisted Philadelphia architect John Notman to see it to fruition, and when Notman began to design the grounds in 1847, he suggested the name Hollywood as a nod to the amount of holly trees peppering the landscape. In less than two decades, the remains of United States Presidents James Monroe and John Tyler would be interred in Hollywood Cemetery, the former in an ominous Gothic Revival tomb dubbed locally as the Birdcage. Confederate leaders Jefferson Davis and J.E.B. Stewart also rest in Hollywood Cemetery. And while the cemetery has more than enough historical significance to attract visitors, the darker aspects of its existence beckon people through the maze-like roads on a regular basis. One of the most prominent structures in the cemetery is a 90-foot stone pyramid designed by Charles Henry Dimmock, built with stacked blocks of James River granite and dedicated November 8, 1869 as a memorial to the 18,000 Confederate war dead buried in close proximity. The bodies of the soldiers were brought from numerous battlefields, including many from Gettysburg. The pyramid took a year to construct and was fraught with injuries and accidents, specifically the repeated breaking of the stone-hauling derrick. Thomas Stanley, a convicted horse thief working as part of the crew, volunteered to climb to the top and place the capstone. So perilous was the feat that Stanley's early prison release presumably followed. There was never an official confirmation of such, 
though Stanley's release box included a penciled notation that read, transferred, without any indication as to where or when. Romanticists believe that the warden himself opened the gate, told Stanley to leave, and to never come back. The pyramid is an architectural marvel, despite having no bonding, but the whispers of the dead have made it infamous. There are endless reports that a burst of ice-cold air can be felt along the pyramid's rear wall. Of the 18,000 soldiers buried nearby, 11,000 remain unidentified, and some say their restless spirits are trapped in a spectral loop around the obelisk. Disembodied moans at dawn and dusk have also been reported. In February of 1862, a two-year-old girl named Florence Reese died of scarlet fever. The cause of Florence's death was common in the 19th century, thus it is not as remarkable as the conspicuous statue keeping watch over her grave. A life-sized black cast-iron Newfoundland dog is situated on the right side, and there are two conflicting explanations for its presence. The first story suggests that an anonymous shopkeeper, remembering how much Florence had loved the dog perched in front of his store on Main Street when she visited with her father, decided to bequeath the statue as a testament to Florence's kind heart. The second story, though, not as sentimental, asserts that Florence's father, Thomas, installed the dog statue at his daughter's grave to prevent it from being melted down for bullets during the war. Because materials were in short supply, a chunk of iron so large would surely have been pilfered. But Thomas Reese, assuming that no one would dare insult the memory of a two-year-old, placed it in Hollywood Cemetery. There has never been a definitive answer for the dog's company. Still, those who pay their respects claim to hear random barking near Florence's final resting place, while those who lean too close to the grave have heard growling. The dog's position is also said to change, sometimes facing the opposite way, perhaps to protect the little girl beneath. Arguably the most notorious haunting in Hollywood is that of the Richmond Vampire. The legend can be traced to the factual Church Hill Tunnel collapse on October 2, 1925. The tunnel opened in 1875 and was part of the old Chesapeake and Ohio Railway. Initial construction was nightmarish, due in part to Virginia's clay soil, which changed with rainfall and caused frequent cave-ins. Years of persistent collapsing forced CNO Railroad to seek a safer alternative. The company completed a riverfront viaduct in 1901, after which the Church Hill Tunnel fell into virtual abandonment. That is, until 1925. It was in this year that officials decided to restore the tunnel to operational condition. During repairs on October 2nd, a collapse near the western end trapped a work train. Engineer Thomas Joseph Mason was killed, and others were never found. Three men, including fireman Benjamin F. Mosby, managed to escape through the east end of the tunnel. Mosby, who'd been shoveling coal into the firebox of a steam locomotive, was seriously burned by a ruptured boiler. In the aftermath of tragedy, strange reports arose. A local story alleged that a hideous creature with jagged teeth and hanging skin had emerged from the tunnel collapse 
and made its way toward the James River. Pursued by a mob, the creature darted into Hollywood Cemetery, where it vanished in the hillside mausoleum of one W.W. Poole. Poole was an 80-year-old bookkeeper at the time of his death in 1922, yet his mausoleum bears the year 1913. The incongruous date supposedly marks his wife's death. Folklorists, however, believe that Poole himself was the Richmond vampire and that the omission of his own birth-death years is proof of his immortality. The plausible explanation is that onlookers actually saw Benjamin Mosby emerge from the tunnel, his teeth broken and his skin seared and mangled from his injuries. Mosby died the day after the cave-in at Grace Hospital. After eight days of rescue efforts, only the body of engineer Thomas Mason was recovered. Still, that hasn't stopped the enduring tale of Hollywood's vampire. To this day, wary visitors take photos of Poole's mausoleum, hoping to catch a glimpse of something unexpected emerge from its door. Beautiful and historic, Hollywood Cemetery is a must-see. Its winding roads and handsome stone monuments make it one of Richmond's crown jewels. But within its gates reside thousands of anguished soldiers, a faithful Newfoundland, and maybe, just maybe, a vampire. When Weird Darkness returns, weirdo family member Elena describes her childhood home where she heard strange footsteps and banging on doors when no one was home, and a crucifix which refused to stay upright. And an Australian man tells of a fishing trip where he and a couple of friends come across what appears to be a Yowie or Bigfoot, but more human-like. These stories are up next. Here at Weird Darkness, scares are a daily thing but what I'm about to tell you might horrify you. Someone in your family could, right now, be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. Over 43,000 people die each year from drug overdose. That's 120 people per day, 5 people per hour. That's a death by overdose every 12 minutes. And alcohol abuse is even worse. 88,000 people die every year from alcohol abuse. That's 240 people per day, 10 per hour. One person dying from alcohol abuse every six minutes. Somebody close to you might be next. Before that happens, take a proactive step and learn how to get those you love away from the drugs, alcohol, and other bad influences. Learn more by calling 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get the help they need and keep their job so they can return to it. 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. Many Yowie witnesses claim the creature resembles a large, upright, hair-covered ape or gorilla, but a few describe the animal as being much more human-like. One of the best reports of this type came from Sydney, Australia's Gary Jones. 
Although he was only 16 or 17 years old when he encountered the strange creature in June 1989, he is confident his recollection of its weird appearance is accurate. The encounter happened 15 kilometers south of Katoomba, New South Wales, in the heart of the wild Conangra Boyd National Park. The Cropster interviewed him in 2003, and this is what was said. We, Gary and two lifelong mates, often go trout fishing in this area called the Kalmung Junction, where the Kalmung joins Cox's River just upstream from Lake Buragorang. It takes us six and a half hours to get there, that's half mountain bike riding and half bushwalking. We stash our bikes in the scrub halfway and walk the rest because it's so steep. The last 1,600 feet of the descent takes you about an hour and 10 minutes because you have to tack down. It's very remote and there's a lot of wildlife down there – dingoes, wombats, roos. In the upper Kalmung you can see platypuses. We got down to the river at about 2 or 2.15, fished for about an hour and a bit, and started collecting firewood. So we were going along the riverbank, just up from the junction, and my mate said, check that out, or something, and lo and behold, on the other side of the river, about 30 meters upstream, was a gentleman who was not wearing any clothes and who was basically as hairy as you could possibly imagine. At the beach, I've seen blokes with really hairy backs. Well, if you can imagine the worst-case scenario, but all over. And I said, oh, it's a bloke and we had a short conversation and then walked up to get level with him. As well as having such a striking appearance, the hairy creature which had its back to them was standing in a most unusual pose. He had one foot up on the bank and one in the water. He was doing the splits, but one leg was higher than the other. It's a very steep bank and the water there is about four feet deep. He was sort of reached over, stooping down, drinking out of his right hand so he had his left shoulder and that part of his back towards us. He didn't see us because we were behind him and on the other side of the river. And there's a rapid current flow. The current moves river stones and it's quite noisy. We walked up to directly opposite and we were only the width of the river, 14 meters maximum from him, when he saw us and stood up. There was no hesitation. To stand up from that angle, you'd have to be fairly well conditioned. He showed no strain no effort, he just stood up very strong and straight upright. He was very tall, probably six foot six or seven inches, and had long legs. I weigh 100, 112 kilos. He would have had 10 to 15 kilos on me, but he wasn't fat. This person was solid and his shoulders were big. He could have been a footballer, really wide shoulders, very muscly, a short neck. Interestingly, Gary did not consider the creature's arms remarkably long. They seemed no longer proportionately than those of a large man. Its hair was a very dark brown, the same color all over, until you got to his face. You ever seen a black dog where it's been in the sun too long, gets that ready tinge to it? That's what his head and beard looked like. The beard and head hair were matted, it looked disgusting, you know, like some of those dreadlock type things. The hair on his shoulders and torso, arms, and legs was about five to six centimeters long, about two inches. It was thick cover. The only spots that were not covered with hair were the soles of his feet, which Gary said he glimpsed as the creature walked away. And they were discolored with dirt and mud, so there was really no way to tell what his skin color was. 
Even his buttocks were covered in hair. I didn't see the inside of his hands, but I'd assume there would be no hair there. He had deep eye sockets. His hair seemed to extend all the way down to his eyes and his beard all the way up to his eyes. I'd never seen a face like that before. It didn't look like a monkey or an ape or anything. Quite a long forehead, probably twice the height of my forehead. His head looked more pointed than, say, mine, but all the hair made it difficult to tell. I could see the eyes. They were dark. I couldn't tell you what color, but they were set well back. I saw thick-set lips. They were a dark color. He stood right up and looked right at us. He had no expression, just blank. Didn't show any fear, made no sound. It was quite weird. And then he turned and took off. Now, the bush was thick forest, but towards the edge there was that prickly native scrub that cuts and scratches you. A normal person would push past it or go around, but he didn't even stop. He ran straight through it. If you look at someone who's done weights, they have wide shoulders and like a, a V-shape. That's how it looked from behind. And solid buttocks. You know how the buttocks of sprinters get really big? That's what it was like, but with hair all over. Our first instinct was to go across and check this bloke out, but when we rock hopped across we found we had to struggle up onto the bank that he had simply stepped up onto. On the bank where he'd been standing there was a really, really strong smell like ammonia or urine. The closest thing I've smelled was a fox in season, or maybe if you go past the bat cage in a zoo. He'd probably a 50-meter head start on us, but we could hear him running in the distance and we followed him up to the ridge. That gradient is incredibly steep, but he could move uphill very, very quickly. I used to play football, and we were all quite fit, but we were buggered after going only about eight or 900 meters. We didn't have any chance of catching him. On that slope, there are loose rocks underfoot, and we could hear them rolling and crashing as it moved away ahead of us. We were puffing and panting, and we could hear it puffing and panting in the distance. I couldn't have run faster than I did in those conditions. We were cut and scratched from the bushes and we weren't making any ground on it at all. At this stage, it would have been 3.15 or 3.30 and as you get up that side, because the sun sets to the west, you're on the inside of the valley, so it gets quite eerie. So when we got up there on the ridge, we could still hear him in the distance. The urine smell was getting very strong. We got to a small clearing and it got worse, and that's when our minds started reeling. You think, what is this thing? It doesn't smell too good. Are we going back to where it lives? What could happen? It dawned on me that if we kept going, it might be dark before we got back to camp and we didn't have torches. I said, look, it's going to get dark. And one of my mates said, yeah, let's get out of here. We don't know whether there's others. Walking down, we kept looking over our shoulders, thinking, is that thing following us? On the way down, on the bushes that had cut us, there was hair. It had stuck on the bushes as if a horse had gone through. Big chunks of hair, just normal hair. It was coarse, a dark brown color, about five or six centimeters long. It may have come off his arms or legs. Even his buttocks were covered in hair. I wish I'd been smarter and grabbed some of it, but we honestly thought it was some feral guy. When we got back to where he'd been standing, there was that really coarse river sand, and there were definite footprints. His feet were probably size 11, not absolutely huge. You could see five toes, there was a definite heel and arch. 
It wasn't until we got back across the river and sat down and chatted, saying, what was that, that one of my mates said, it's a Yowie. And I said, no, I think it's just a wild man. For the rest of the trip, we were a bit worried, particularly that first night. Every stick that broke or any noise outside the tent, we were quite alarmed. We stayed three days. When we were fishing during the day, you could hear, on the ridge line, rocks moving, and we all had the feeling we were being watched, felt eyes on us. It was extraordinary. We felt uneasy, stayed fairly close together. We've been back there most years since, and every time I'm half expecting to see this person, or hairy man, which we now think might be a yaoi. Although Gary finally uttered the Y word, Toward the end of the interview, it was clear that he was reluctant to accept that the creature he saw, though wild, smelly, and hairy, was anything less than fully human. Readers of the interview and listeners to this podcast may have noticed that although he sometimes referred to the creature as it and this thing, he more often used terms like he, him, hairy person, hairy man, and wild man. When pressed on the matter, he explained that he was, by nature, probably the world's biggest skeptic. Quote, I'd heard about Yowies, but I thought this person had sort of left society and became hairy because he wasn't wearing any clothes, had evolved to become hairy, or it could have been some wild race of man that was undiscovered because where we were was about as remote as you could get. It was human. It's interesting to note that Gary's mate, an equally credible witness, was left with a slightly different impression, that the creature was distinctly subhuman and was most likely a Yowie. I have a few encounters to tell you about that have happened at my house. I've been living in my house for three years now, which is an old 1940s cottage-style house. The first incident happened within the first eight months of living in the home. I went for a long walk earlier that day through the neighborhood. Nothing strange happened until that night when I woke up in the middle of the night to sounds of a door unlocking. The sound was coming from the kitchen, where there is a door to the driveway, the most commonly used door. After hearing a door open and close, I called out for my mother, who was the only person in the area who had a key to my house, but received no answer. I started to feel extreme fear and panic as the sounds of footsteps slowly started. My body was paralyzed. I tried my best to move, but I couldn't, just I was too scared. I managed to throw the covers over my head while the slow, growing sense of doom fell upon me. It was a fear I have never felt before or since. The only thing I could think of that I could do was to scream prayer, but since I'm not very active in religion, I didn't know any prayers to use. I started to yell, go away, Jesus will protect me, repeatedly. I don't recall falling asleep, but I must have passed out from exhaustion. But it wasn't over. The next thing I knew, I was dreaming. Well, more of a nightmare. I was at the bottom of a large set of stairs that were pitch black halfway up. The feeling of doom and extreme fear was back. I could feel it moving closer down the stairs, even though I couldn't see anything. I started yelling, Jesus will protect me, at this point, 
and it was making me speak in tongues, but I resisted. As abrupt as everything started, it all ended. It was now the morning. There was a weird calm throughout the house. At first, I thought it was all a dream, but my voice was hoarse and almost gone from yelling, so I knew it wasn't all a dream. I do believe ghosts or other supernatural beings can stick to you. The neighborhood I live in is very old. There was no activity until a year and a half later. One evening, I was sitting on the couch reading my book with my cat when I heard a bang from my built-in bookcase. Something told me not to check since my cat was staring at the spot where it came from with such intensity. Soon it was time for bed. Even though I was curious to see what had fell, I wanted to wait. The next morning, before leaving for work, I checked to see what the fallen item was. It was my plastic crucifix, and it was turned over on its side. This left me with an uneasy feeling. It would have taken some effort to knock it over since it was a plastic crucifix that's meant to stand upright, so the bottom is flat and weighted to make it bottom-heavy. I put it back in the same spot and quickly examined it to see if there was a reason for it to fall over, but there wasn't. It had been in the same spot for two and a half years before last night. After returning from work, I checked to see if the crucifix had fallen over again, but it didn't. But unfortunately, it wasn't over yet. The next morning, around 5 a.m., I was awoken by my cat. Shortly after, I heard a loud lump coming from the living room. This sent chills down my spine. I quickly got up and readied for work, trying to get out of the house as soon as possible. Right before I left the house, I checked out the built-ins where the sound came from. I found the crucifix, again, on the floor. I quickly picked it up, placed it back, and ran out of the house. There was no way it could have fallen off the shelf without immense force. During the day, I recruited my best friends to sage my house and salt the doors. After that evening, the house went quiet again with no more issues. Over the last three months, I have started to see a shadow figure around the house. However, I do not feel the impending sense of fear or doom that I felt with the first incident. This shadow figure also hasn't moved any items. The first time I saw the shadow, it was during the day. I was at the end of the hallway leaving my bedroom when I saw a black shadow pass through into the dining room. No one else was home at the time. The next time was around 10 p.m., and I was texting in the dark, so the only light on was my home security tablet. I felt like the open door was growing darker and I began to get a watched feeling. I quickly put my phone down and rolled over, tossing the covers over my head. I stared at the light that shined from the tablet on the wall when suddenly all the light blacked out for a moment. I shot up and turned the light on, but nothing was there. The most recent time was only a few weeks ago in the morning. The house was bright from the morning sun. I was staring down the hallway at the light coming through the bathroom, leaving a doorway-shaped light on the hallway's wall, when suddenly all the light disappeared but as quick as it disappeared, it came back. I don't have a terrified feeling or any sense of doom that comes over me, 
whenever the shadow figure is present. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. All patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness on weekdays, plus two exclusive bonus episodes on the weekends. They also receive early access to the Weird But True video series on the Weird Darkness website. And if you sign up at only $10 a month, you also get more exclusive content, such as chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them, often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. I'm currently narrating UFOs, Chemtrails, and Aliens by Donald R. Prothero and Timothy D. Callahan, and very soon I'll be narrating Suffer the Children, American Horrors, Homicides, and Hauntings by Troy Taylor. If you want to get some more information about how to become a patron, you can do that at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, read creepy stories, or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. And I forgot to pull a winner for this week's Weird Darkness retweet because I was so uh, distracted, for lack of better words, with the live scream and Halloween and also the uh, Battle of the Darkness thing. But next week's winner will get a free Weird Darkness crew neck sweatshirt. So if you want to register to win, it's free to do. All you have to do is follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. And the more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. And I will choose one retweet at random this coming Monday. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, any other way you connect with the outside world. You can email me at darren at weirddarkness.com. And if you'd like to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast, please take a moment, leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. And I received some really nice messages about last night's live stream, and I'll share those with you now. I got an email from Will saying, Dear Mr. Marler, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for doing your live scream 2018. I'm an American that's been living in the United Kingdom for the last seven years, and Halloween is not nearly celebrated the same way here. Halloween is one of my favorite holidays, and I have missed the experience that is Halloween in the States. Watching your live stream let me experience American Halloween while I'm so far from home, which I appreciated. Thanks again. Sincerely, Will. Joe sent me an email saying, Darren, what a great live show, and I have to tell you how much I admire your radio etiquette. I got into radio 25 years ago only to be my dad's producer. He was the host of the show I wound up inheriting, but which I took over and it still hasn't managed to run its course as radio shows often do. Anyway, I've met and heard many great radio voices, but I must say you, sir, are an absolute master at your craft. I love your focus, inflection, and enunciation. Your depth of description with words makes the listener feel right there, part of the broadcast, like old-time mystery radio used to be when we were kids. All right, right there, Joe. That is a great compliment. Thank you. He continues saying, I still, after all these years, have my own style, but it's a music show. You're great at what you do. 
What's nice about Audacity is you can edit my shows live and gets uploaded for archiving the same day, so I'm really careful not to slip up. Please don't thank me gauche if I ever asked for what your secret to such great announcing is. Thanks, Darren. You're really the best. Signed, Joe. Well, thank you, Joe. Um, that's, that was actually a really great thing for me to, to uh, read first thing this morning. I appreciate the, the really nice comments. I never used Audacity myself. For those listening, Audacity is is a way to digitally record yourself and then be able to edit it. Um, I have never used Audacity. I've been using Adobe Audition since like the late 90s, back when it was called Cool Edit Pro, and it's, just, it's worked out really well for me. Um, my first step into digital audio workstations – now I'm talking to radio geeks, I'm sorry – but my, my first step into digital audio workstations was a program called SAW and then Saw 32, not to be mistaken with the Saw movies that have not quite reached number 32 yet, but probably will someday. Uh, I got another message from Estelle. She happens to be one of my patrons. She said, Thank you for the live scream last night. Sat up and watched in the UK. Thank you for all your efforts and for sharing your Halloween evening with us. Technology does have its benefits. Happy birthday to you, Darren. Take it easy on yourselves today. I'm looking forward to the next broadcast of All Things Weird and Strange. And then Jessica emailed saying, Dear Darren, I love your podcast! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. I listen every day as I am a housekeeper and it makes it fun to work. I must say it makes me a little jumpy sometimes on the more scary or true stories. I absolutely loved the live broadcast. Your bride is amazing. I love all the interruptions and the trick-or-treaters. I hope to see more like this. I cannot convey how much your well, uh, your. Uh, let me say that again. I cannot convey how much your well everything has helped me. Please keep on going on. Hope to see you next Halloween. Weirdo family for life, Jessica W. And all right, I will mention. Um, I went back. I couldn't see the comments as they were being left during the live scream last night, so I went back earlier this morning and I watched it in almost almost in its entirety. And just watching the comments flying was so much fun. It really made me feel great to have so many people watching all at the same time. I think I had about 150 people um, at all times watching, which doesn't sound like a lot, but my videos normally get on YouTube between like two and five hundred views, and the uh, last I checked, the live stream from last night was over twelve hundred views, and and so many people said, "I want to see this next year. This needs to be an annual thing." So I may have to make that an annual thing, just because I don't think you will uh, let me do otherwise. So, uh, but I'll I'll keep that in mind. I think it would be fun to make it an annual thing, especially if we can make it as a fundraiser for depression and. Uh, and uh, suicide prevention. I think if we tie it in together and do it that way, I think it might be a good thing. And I also had people asking when I could do a Q&A sometime live on YouTube. And I don't know, probably uh, after the first of the year, after the holidays are over, I might consider doing something like that. It does sound like fun. Thank you to everybody, though, for all the nice words, for the emails, for the really nice chats that you left during the episode last night. It was really fun. The following stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Poltergeists, Supernatural Manifestations, Human Agents or Both was written by Troy Taylor. The Royal Ripper Conspiracy was posted at The Unredacted. The Fallen Crucifix was submitted by a Weird Darkness family member, Elena. 
The Hairy Man of the Kalmung River was originally published at The Cropster, and The Ghosts of Richmond's Hollywood Cemetery was written by Gary Sweeney. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadow Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Romans 12.21 Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. IRS. Those three letters create more fear in some people than any episode of Weird Darkness ever could. The IRS does not give up until you pay. Trust me, I know. A few years ago, Robin and I were having some major financial difficulties and we found ourselves owing over $10,000 to the IRS. We almost lost our house. But back then, they didn't have something that exists today. If you owe back taxes, you can call Tax Solutions now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS is offering a tax forgiveness program called Fresh Start, and it can help you pay back taxes, avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Tax Solutions Now is accredited with the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. So if you need a fresh start when it comes to your tax burden, call Tax Solutions Now at 800 417 9743. That's 800-417-9743. 800-417-9743.